Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still, at least until Danny finally gets that threatened thing done, less ukulele. On this episode, water, water everywhere, and only beer to drink. Look, we know that water is important to our beer quality, but beyond the basics, how do we exactly dial in what our water needs to be the best supporting player? Today, I sit down with Martin Brungard, creator of Brewing Water Spreadsheet, and talk not only about water, but how to use his intimidatingly awesome tool to make simple work of a complex subject. But first, a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the AHA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. Ladies and gentlemen, as brewers, we know that, you know, water, water makes up, well, for most people, probably about 95% of their beer, but I know for some of you homebrewers, it makes about 80% of your beer. I think I find myself usually kind of scratching my head at some of the water stuff. Chemistry was always my worst, worst subject in uh, science. And so I figured let's talk about it. And in order to talk about it and actually make hash of it and make something sensible, then we'd actually have to have an expert on the line. And I think I have an expert on the line. I'm Martin Brungard, uh, originator of the Brew and Water Software and uh, one of the technical editors for uh, Palmer and Kaminsky's book on water. And, and uh, also a technical reviewer for Simple Homebrewing. 
there you go. Forthcoming this spring from Brewers Publications. All right. Plug done. Very good. How did you become, this is where I usually ask people how you got into into good beer, but I think we have to start with a, a slightly more fundamental aspect to it. How did you become a, for lack of a better way of putting it, a water nerd? Well, my training as a civil engineer and environmental engineer uh, introduced me to various aspects of water, and uh, but I found out pretty quickly uh, that brewing water is quite different from the potable water and wastewater stuff that I deal with professionally. So it took some real study here. And I do find that uh, your beer ends up much better when you are adjusting your water. So with that, I launched into this endeavor to make it easier for me and therefore make it easier for everybody else to do. And I think that's one of those things, one of those few things that seems to be borne out by all the citizen science that's happening in homebrewing is, hey, you know that water chemistry stuff? It really matters. It really does. And a lot of things in this world can be forgiven by good yeast health and proper sanitation, but bad water is never going to ever be fixed. The usual sort of water stuff that people deal with, like the things that you see out of sewage plants and whatnot, I mean, that all comes down to what basically is the water safe and does it not taste like metal? Correct. Now, in the brewing world, what are we actually looking for? You know, because it's far more complicated, as you implied. Well, a lot of people like to say, oh, well, if the water tastes good, then you can brew with it, which is pretty much true. Doesn't mean you're going to make great beer with it. But uh, one thing that is true is to take the antonym of that. If the water tastes bad, it's not a good beer. There is no way around it that bad flavor is going to echo into your beer and you really do need to pay attention to, to how it tastes. And then functionally, you need to be paying attention to how it performs in your brewing setup. So it really comes down to two things, a flavor impact and then a biochemical impact to the whole brewing process. Correct. And the, the big part of that biochemical effect is based on pH. And so what exactly is pH? Well, pH functionally is the concentration of hydrogen atoms in your water. And water dissociates in, into two parts, uh, hydroxyl and hydrogen protons. And pH is a fancy way of, I guess, assessing and describing how what the concentration of the hydrogen ion is. From a mash point of view, I mean, it's commonly said, okay, so, you know, hey, mash pH, that affects the efficiency of the enzymes, right? Like how, how well they work. Correct. So there are a variety of enzymes in the mashing process, and pH affects all of them. It just so happens that the mashing process seems to be happiest when you're in a pH range between 5.2 and 5.6. I think at least, you know, in my experience, most water won't natively get there when you just mix water and your malts, right? Correct. Uh, it, it will tip, even with the most pure and pristine water, it will end up at a higher pH than that. So for most brewing, you always have to add an acid of some sort. Now, if you're brewing a dark beer, well, the acid's already there because 
you've got those dark grains that are much more acidic, so they drive pH down. And but for your parallel pale, but for your paler beers, you will almost always have to add an external acid like lactic acid or phosphoric acid malt. So let me ask: in the days prior to people knowing about this sort of stuff. Was it just that we weren't as optimal with our beer? You know, we we didn't have as good beer and people just lived with it? Or is this, or was there something else going on? Oh, there was a, a lot of different techniques to actually uh, bring pH down. Uh, for instance, if your water was uh, full of, a, of alkalinity, and alkalinity is uh, another term for the concentration of uh, carbonate species in your water, you can actually pre-boil your water before you use it. It'll drive off some of that alkalinity. So that's one way. Another way is you conduct a, a more sour mash and or an acid rest, either of which will take things on down for you. So once again, we're in that kind of realm where brewing always used to kind of be something done by feel, but now we actually have the science behind it so we can shortcut some things with say lactic acid or other water adjustments. Exactly. And, you know, in, in the good old days, you, know, you were uh, an apprentice for quite a while and you learned to do it this way. And that, that particular way was because that's how the brewer actually found out that, you know, this works better. So let's keep doing it. So kind of uh, brewer's tales based on repeated experience spread down through the years. We don't do that anymore, do we? No. We do not. <laughs> not at all. Well, and on top of that, you know, now we have a worldwide reach and what works for me won't work for you more than likely. Right. Which, which of course, is always the problem with, you know, taking somebody else's ideas and running with them without, you know, giving them sort of analysis for your, your situation. Exactly. We've uh, we're talking a little bit about pH. We're talking a little bit about water, and, and I mean, already I know that there are people out there who are their eyes are doing that thing where they're sitting in classroom again. You know, maybe they're back to the the fearful exam, you know, nightmare of being naked and not having studied for the test. Of course, for those people, what do you think are the bare minimum things that they need to know about water to at least? if not be perfect about it to at least sort of minimize the impact of either bad water or maximize their chances for success. Most of us get our water from a municipal water supply and by law, they have to be chlorinated. So dechlorinating your water to avoid that uh, fatal chlorophenol uh, taste in your, in your beer is an important first step. That's, that's absolutely the first step. Listeners will know I've harped on that in the in the past. You know, it's like get rid of the chlorine or the chloramine. You know, you know, filter your water or put Canton in it or something. Just do anything. Just get rid of it. Exactly. So with that simple step, you've taken it out at least some of the bad flavors that might have developed. And then, as I mentioned prior, virtually all brewing requires an acid. If you're brewing a dark beer the acid supplied by the, the grain that you're adding. But for all those pale beers that you're brewing, you, you're almost certainly going to have to add an acid of some form. And the tricky part is knowing, okay, how much? 
And well, that's a hard question. And that's one of the uh, reasons why there are software programs out there to help brewers understand what their uh, particular grist and their water demand. Well, if only we had somebody that we could talk to about such a thing. I know. How did Brewing Water, and for people who don't know, Brewing Water is an Excel spreadsheet that Martin's put together for uh, for quite a while now. Wh- which version are you on now? Oh, golly, we're up to version five. So version five, and it's available. There's both a sort of a, a free version, and then there's also like the super duper spiffy, you know, donation version. Exactly. And the, and the free version is intended to, to introduce folks to... Uh, brewing water chemistry in the simplest possible fashion. It's it's stripped out from all the bells and whistles, just trying to give, get you uh, introduced to the point where you'll actually be able to operate it and and enjoy its product. And then if you if you like that, well then you can graduate into the the supporters version that has a whole lot more bells and whistles that allows you to do some interesting things that are very helpful for some styles of beer. So how did this come about? Like, I mean, was this just something that you started on a lark because you were like, I I need to, I need to do this for my own brewing. Exactly. I need to do it for my brewing. (laughs) And I did a bunch of research, a bunch of experimentation, uh, had my ideas on how pH and, water adjustments were affecting pH and it turned out that I was correct and created something that was reasonably reliable and, and getting me pretty close to where my target was with respect to pH. I figured I need to share this. So I have to ask, I mean, given that, you know, this is on version five and most of the major brewing software out there, you know, they all have some variety of water profiler in there. I mean, you can go all the way back to ProMash and they had a water profiler in there. I would, I would think that, that this should be kind of like, you know, oh, well, this is settled, right? You know, you, you plug in X and Y and you get Z and everybody should be able to do the, the same thing. So I, I'm kind of surprised that, uh, that that's not the case. So, so like what keeps changing? Is it just improvement in models or new research that you're finding or? Uh, refinement in the uh, pH prediction, uh, added features. For instance, the latest uh, editions have a way to store and retrieve your your uh, water profiles uh, along with your, your grain bills so that you, if you're brewing the same beer on occasion, you can bring it up instantly and not have to re-enter all that stuff. Labor savings. Who knew? Exactly. Let's dig in then, I think, to brewing water. And I think there's no better way to dig into something than to do a practical example. I think the first thing that we have to start with is getting a water report, right? And as you alluded to earlier, you know, there are federal standards for all this sort of stuff. And one of them is that your water district has to provide you some sort of report. Unfortunately, many of those water reports from uh, your water provider are concentrating on the the evil, poisonous things like methyl ethyl death and and all the carcinogens. Well, the, the one that cracks me up is in LA they have, uh, and I don't know if it's a federal standard, but they they track the parts per million of uh, uranium in the water. Yes, <laughs> and of course, of course that may, means nothing to us brewers other than we would prefer low uranium water in our brewing. I, I don't know. It could add a, it could add a special glow to a hazy IPA. 
that it could. But the uh, things that are important to brewers are actually referred to as secondary standards, and water providers are not required to test for these things, although many of them do. As a matter of fact, I've even seen some uh, water providers actually post a, a listing of their secondary standards as an aid for homebrewers. So, you know, some, some of them are, are getting it, or, or at least they're getting a heck of a lot of phone calls. So they're cutting it off at the pass. I was going to say, yeah, they're either getting bothered by everybody or somebody on the water board is a homebrewer and said, hey, I want to know this. Exactly. And I know the ones that actually the LADWP, you know, who used to be my provider until I moved. Yeah, they actually, and actually it's all out of the Metropolitan Water District anyway. They they actually provide a, a fairly comprehensive report, which is kind of nice. If somebody lives in a place where they don't list out these secondary standards, what are the best ways for them to go figure out what exactly is happening with their water? Well, one of the least expensive ways is to uh, employ the the Ward Labs folks in, uh, I believe they're in Nebraska or something like that. Yeah, they're in Kearney, Nebraska. And they do a good job. They do produce a, a quick turnaround product. Um, and they are well set up and well versed in producing that product. So it's it's a great boon to brewers across the U.S. Yeah, and you can go and you can actually order one of the tests from them. It's at www.wardlab.com. I was really shocked. I I did my water test with them. I ordered it and I sent them the sample just after Christmas, and they emailed me back a PDF report on January third. <laughs> So like not a lot, not a lot of time there to, to get the results back. And I forget, I think they changed the test numbers recently, like a couple of years ago. I think, I think the test that people care about now is they call it, I think the W6. Yeah, there's, there's several that are uh, functional for us, but uh, all you need is the minimum here. What is the minimum? So the minimum parameters that we're interested in are sodium, calcium, magnesium, sulfate, chloride, and the alkalinity, which in most cases is expressed as bicarbonate. The rest parameters like iron and phosphorus and, and potassium and nitrate, well, they, they're good for helping us balance the water report, but they're re- really not utilized in our uh, brewing process. And you can tell this because when you open up brewing water, and by the way, it, for everybody out there, if you open up brewing water, I will I will tell you the very first thing is go read the instructions. Two, don't be intimidated. Three, if you open up that spreadsheet and it automatically makes sense to you, I can tell that you're an engineer. <laughs> Martin, I wouldn't even have to know know you and your background to know that, that you have to be an engineer in order to make up a spreadsheet like this. The very first tab is where you go and enter in your water water report and you know nice little blue shaded boxes and they tell telling you all the important things that you need to know right there the the top ones calcium magnesium sodium bicarbonate carbonate sulfate and chloride you got those you're pretty well set you're pretty well set and if your water has iron in it or too much iron in it go find other water that is the bottom line if it has too much iron or manganese and this is going to be expressed pretty plainly to you when you drink that water. If it tastes metallic, well, there's, it's got too much of something and you, you probably need to move on. I got here my, my ward report. To me, this is this is a fairly standard water. Uh, you know, I, I took, like I said before, I did this sample 
uh, in late December. So before we would have gotten any of the snow melt uh, affecting our water supply here in LA. You know, in theory, it would have been the most concentrated water that we would normally have in the year. It looks pretty, pretty normal. I mean, it's, you know, the default pH that they read on it was 7.9, 51 parts per million sodium. That seems a little high to me. Uh, a little bit high, but uh, as John Palmer and I have found out that sodium is really not a real detriment to brewing. You can live with the levels that you've got in that water. Low potassium, uh, two parts per million? Is, is perfectly fine. I've got basically just about enough calcium to be able to do mashing at 47 parts per million. Because I know uh, John's uh, recommendation for years has always been to get to at least 50. And that's a, a good premise for, for many beers. The 12 parts per million of uh, magnesium. Uh, total hardness uh, is 168. Uh, sulfate, which actually surprised me, is only 26. But the sulfate is expressed uh, SO4 dash S. So that means that that is sulfate expressed as sulfur. So for that result, 26 ppm, that means you have to multiply that by three. It just it just worked out that way. Um, so your true sulfate concentration is 78 parts per million. Which is far more reasonable. And, and by the way, this is actually a very important point because this is one of the things I think that has confused me for years about water reports and trying to figure out, okay, what what does my water do? The upshot of it is that you have to pay attention to not just the parts per million, but parts per million as what? As what, exactly. And the other thing that you'll notice on a ward report, they report hardness and alkalinity both as calcium carbonate. And people get confused with that because other water reports will give uh, a variety of hardnesses and, again, express them as calcium carbonate, but they are not true parts per million uh, of either calcium or magnesium. You have to convert them. So it's a little more tricky. And the same thing goes for the alkalinity value, which, again, is expressed in that same strange format it has to be converted into something that can actually be utilized. Brewing water expects total hardness and total alkalinity as the CaCO3. You can, there are converters to help you convert, say, your water report only provided you calcium hardness as calcium carbonate, and you could use one of the converters in the program to give, uh, get it to tell you what that means in in parts per million calcium. So in this particular case, yeah, you know, I've got total hardness here as, you know, CaCO3 and it's reported as 168 parts per million. Correct. The problem with that is that that total hardness is composed of both calcium and magnesium. So unless you had uh, a, hard, a calcium hardness or a magnesium hardness value, you would never be able to utilize uh, that total hardness value and convert it into either calcium or magnesium parts per million. With that total hardness and the total alkalinity, the way that, that I have those expressed here, what do I what do I do with them in brewing water? In brewing water, well, for instance, uh, total alkalinity is very frequently reported on many water reports. You would plug that value uh, along with its with the reported pH for your water, 
into the converter uh, on the Brunewater software, and it will spit out both the bicarbonate and the carbonate concentrations, and then you can enter them into the water report uh, uh, cells that are shown in blue on brewing water. So yeah, okay, so I see we've got reported total alkalinity or temporary hardness. Put that uh, put that value in, so in, in my particular case, that's 155. And then whatever the pH is, which in my case is 7.9, And then that gives me back an estimated bicarbonate concentration of 187.7, which actually lines up with the bicarbonate value that they gave. Estimated carbonate concentration of 0.7, which again lines up with what they gave as a separate value in the the water report, which is one of the nice things about the water report. And it also shows that the math actually kind of tracks. (laughs) As it should. And the other con- the other uh, good thing that uh, Ward provides is that they tell you whether or not your cations and anions, the positive and negative ions, are balancing. In the case of your water report, uh, 5.6 milliequivalents for cations and 5.8 milliequivalents for anions. So pretty close. I'll take it. It's almost like LA's a big city, and they've uh, they've paid a lot of attention to the water. <laughs> and of course, you know, as we were referring to earlier, LA water is also treated with chloramine since it is a big district, and they want the they want the solution to be stable. Uh, so I always treat mine with uh, potassium uh, or potassium metabisulfite to be able to get rid of the chloramine. Does that actually have an impact on the water chemistry, or is it a minimal enough water chemistry impact that we don't have to worry about it? It it does increment up the uh, sulfate slightly, uh, and by that I mean only uh, three or four parts per million, so no big deal there. And the fact that you're using potassium metabisulfite uh, is a good thing because you already have a decent amount of sodium in your water, so you don't necessarily want to add any more. And of course, uh, there is sodium metabisulfite, and that's what I use because I have low sodium because I use RO water, but it is a uh, always an option. Either of those uh, chemicals are suitable for removing chlorine or chloramines. Again, guys, with this first screen of the brewing water spreadsheet, Martin uh, talked about that conversion factor. If you scroll down uh, the spreadsheet, you'll actually see there's an ion converter. So if you get one of these reports or you generate a report like you get a home testing kit, uh, there's one from, say, Brew Lab that can help get you in the ballpark. You can use those ion converters to get the appropriate values to be able to plug in. And by the way, I actually like the Brew Lab product. I have it in my I have it in my garage, and I use it sometimes just to double check. This also brings up the other point: is I mean, as you were saying, you know, hey, you know, that, that potassium metabisulfite will raise the you know the sulfite level a little bit. It always feels like to me because later on we'll get into you know doing adjustments. It feels like to me that people get too obsessive about getting the numbers dialed up perfectly. Right? It's something about I think the engineer brain that goes numbers must line up. How much how much wiggle room? is there in this? Like how accurate do you have to be in onto the PPMs and all that? Not at all. Uh, if, if you're within 10 or 20 parts per million for many of those ions, you're okay. The only one that really gets a little bit hairy is magnesium. Uh, that one does have a relatively low upper limit. 
So you, you wouldn't want to play too much with that. And so as we move into the report, because I mean, now I've got a completed water report. And what's nice to see again is all those calculations that you have in the spreadsheet line up pretty, pretty close to the ward report. So go math. You got a, a sparge, a sparge water acidification calculator. So basically, you know, come in here. How much, how much water are you using? You know, what's the pH of the water? You know, and you know, it takes in the values of alkalinity and all that sort of fun stuff, and comes out and says, "Hey, by the way, if you're going to use lactic acid, add a milliliter per gallon, whatever it takes." And and the good thing is, uh, w- even though there are multiple tabs on the brewing water program. Those first two tabs, the water report input and then the sparge acidification tabs, once you've entered this basic data once, you should never have to go back to those sheets again. And it'll be just the next two sheets that we'll talk about that you'll be dealing with primarily. Let me ask. So the other thing that I think a lot of people get confused about is, again, we're going to talk a little bit about water adjustments and like, hey, you know, adding this salt to do this and, you know, that salt to do this and adjust your water profile. With the sparge water, are we making those same adjustments or are we just doing acidification? No, on the water adjustment sheet, that's where you will decide what the actual additions are for both water and the sparging water. Okay, well, let's get there. But before we get there, we got to talk grain because as you, You'd said earlier, you know, if you're using dark malts, you're already getting your acidification from those dark malts. They'll they'll drop your pH. But one of the things that people have to realize is that you know, water adjusting water pH for for mashing is not just a matter of hey, I know I know the pH of my water, so I'll add this much acid in order to in order to adjust it, right? Because the grain brings its own math to the equation. Exactly. The your grain is a big buffer. And what a buffer means is that it resists pH change. And it it wants to buffer around, we'll say, uh, upper five and around six pH. And it takes a bit of acid to, to bring the pH lower than that. So you, you do really have to, to punch it hard with the acid in order to bring it down. Are there particular varieties of malt that are more that provide more buffering capacity, or is it just you know grain in general will provide all this buffering power? Well, grain in general has has the buffering power, but uh, many grains are more acidic than others, and I believe many of uh, us know that roasted grains are much more acidic, and of course, acid malt is very acidic. But then uh, what's maybe surprising to some, that uh, some of the darker crystal malts are actually very acidic also. So uh, with that understanding, and and for the typical brewer, you don't necessarily have to understand that. That's why we have the software uh, that helps make sure that we can just dial in our, our recipe and move on because I, I know I'm not sure about you, Drew, but I'm not really that interested in chemistry. I'm interested in brewing beer. Exactly. I'm I'm interested in the creation process. And I mean, I know this is part of the creation process, but it's a lot of math. Exactly. And it's all hidden away from you. So you don't have to deal with this, 
kind of stuff that would just curdle most people's brains in it. And, and yes, it has curdled mine, but I've recovered. Tab number three in here, you literally go in and you enter in, hey, you know, I've got 10 pounds of pale malt. I've got this much, you know, wheat or oats or whatever. Uh, and the in the background, the spreadsheet's doing its math on its fingers. And it's figuring out what the total buffering capacity is, which then leads us into, uh, I guess, really the fourth tab, which is, okay, great. We've got knowledge about your water. We've got knowledge about how you're going to acidify your sparge water. Now we got knowledge about how much buffering capacity you're introducing via your malt. So now what do we do to make your beer sing the way you want your beer to sing? And again, we're dealing with those, those dual needs that we have. One controlling the, the pH for optimization of the biochemical process involved here, and then controlling our salts and everything else for optimization of organoleptic impact. Exactly. Moving on to that, we are now dialing in some of the seasonings that John Palmer likes to refer them as, and and then also, most importantly, the acids that we may may or may not need in order to bring our mashing pH into a proper range. And and so let's talk the things that you're you're going to choose here because I mean I think the very first choice that you have on there is basically okay so what sort of water profile are you going for and you have if you scroll down in the spreadsheet you'll see there's a giant list of all these different water profiles and of course you start with sort of the classic thing which is to say okay great here's all these different cities you know so Burton and Dortmund and Dublin and Edinburgh and whether or not you've boiled them I'm not kidding, folks. There's a ton of classical, you know, sort of European brewing profiles in there. And then you get into what I think is actually the more interesting piece, which is you step completely away from either style or from city and you move into color, whether you want this beer to be sort of either dry or full or balanced. Correct. I always caution people don't use the cities so much don't depend upon those as much because to me that's sort of hitting a historical target thing that may or may not reflect reality today or reality ever and and that's true and and instead i always encourage people to to think in terms of those yellow foals or amber dry or brown balanced you know type things because to me that's the immediate need that you have in front of you right that's the immediate desired target is I want to make a brown beer that emphasizes the malt character. So I want to be more brown full as opposed to, I want to hit something that tastes like came from Edinburgh. There you go. And, and those, those color based water profiles were created to uh, provide only minimal uh, mineralization so that uh, you're not creating an Alka-Seltzer beer and, uh, still producing the effects in the end product that you want. Those profiles give you targets for the various ions like sulfate and chloride uh, that that help flavor your beer. You just touched on something that I think a lot of people, when they start playing around with water chemistry, you know, sort of mess up is I think people try to do too much with the water. You know, they, they're adding too much to the water. And the next thing you know, you got a beer that you know, tastes like you might be chewing on a, on a piece of rock with some metal in it. And, and there are some 
some folks who enjoy that kind of beer and others who don't. And I'm, I'm one of the folks who, uh, I, I like modest mineralization. Well, and, and we had talked about on a previous episode of the main show, like one of the British objections to a lot of American water chemistry type stuff is they like to go way harder. You know, like they, they drive much stronger profiles. Uh, if you look at the recommendations, we had those linked in the show notes in the past in comparison to like things that we talk about. Yeah, you're, you're looking at like a 25 to 50% increase in sort of the target range for like where you want your sulfate and that sort of thing. So it's like, oh yeah, you guys are really going for a strong mineral uh, profile. <laughs> yeah, and and that's fine. If that suits your, your palate, then go for it. Yeah, and of course, people can customize a, a desired palate in here. You, you've got the ability to, to add that in. The thing I, I I note is, so I put in here. There's a, a default recipe that you have in the in the brew sheet that's essentially, you know, uh, mostly pills and a little bit of wheat and some other characters just to drive things around, including some acid malt. But when I look at like my water, and I compare it to the profiles that you have in there, the one that it actually ends up, yeah, you know, landing on, and it's funny to me because I think I've sort of natively drifted in this direction without understanding the water chemistry is to is to the yellow dry profile. I have, I have more bicarbonate in there than it's called for in the profile, but everything else is like, you know, yep, you're pretty much right in that yellow dry. And it makes sense that almost all the beers I make are sort of pale yellowish beers. And I like to make saisons and yellow hoppy beers. Interesting. And of course that difference in the bicarbonate content is because uh, your, your water <laughs> still needs some acidification in order to make it suitable for those pale beers uh, like you want to brew. So that brings us to the second point uh, that's probably the most important point is the acidification of your mash because that uh, setting that mash pH and having it end up where you want it to, at least reasonably close, is incredibly important to not only all those organoleptic uh, uh, or bio processes, uh, but also for the, the final taste and perception of the beer. And in the case of your particular water with all that bicarbonate and the alkalinity that it represents, if you didn't acidify your mash, you would end up with a much duller, uh, muddier tasting beer that probably uh, ends up a little bit darker than you had intended and, and just isn't as lively. Whereas when you properly acidify, wow, uh, you know, you, you get a clean, crisp beer that is really pleasing. Well, and I'm happy to note that at least for, you know, sort of the, the default settings, I think uh, Brunoir reports back, uh, I need about uh, one mil of lactic acid per gallon. That seems to jive pretty close to what I, what I actually do. Yeah, and, and with one mil per gallon, that's still reasonably safe for lactic acid because uh, lactic acid does have a flavor. And for some people, and especially if it was a much more alkaline water than than what yours is, you add much more lactic acid than that, and you're going to actually be able to taste it. 
Do you have a rough range where you think that is? Well, one mil per gallon is safe for virtually anybody. Most regular tasters or beer drinkers aren't going to detect any lactate in your in your beer. But there are super tasters who complain at even that level. But by by one and a half mils per gallon lactic or eighty eight percent lactic acid, you are going to taste it other option could be to not use lactic acid and go with something that's a little more flavor neutral and that would be phosphoric acid the usual acid you're going to find in your homebrew shop at least the liquid acid that i find in mine is is lactic at 88 percent. one's okay one and a half you're pushing it and people are going to be able to taste that and if you're over that do something else like looking at this i mean and you do have built-in uh, built-in calculators for diluting with you know, RO water or, you know, some other uh, dilution water if you wanted to use something else. That that finalizes all the calculations and it tells you where you're off. So, you know, like as we were talking about here with, you know, the yellow dry profile, which is arguably the one I use the most, you know, I'm over on sodium, which is not surprising at all because, you know, I have 51 ppm of sodium in my water. And then I'm also in the negative on the bicarbonate because you know, I have so much bicarbonate in my water in comparison to the profile. And then it comes out with a, an estimated mash pH based on both the grain bill and what my what my water is. And what I think is interesting is that the times I've tested, that comes out pretty damn accurate after you add the acid into it. Then below that, we've got a, a sort of a whole water addition panel where you talk where you show people, you know, like here are the common salts that you can get. Right. So your gypsums and, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, how many like how much you have to add in order to get to somewhere into a reasonable range of of what you what you're doing. And of course, for me, with this yellow dry, dry profile, I don't have to add anything in this one. I have to figure out how to remove things. So I don't get any water. I don't get any water salt additions in there, you know, or the ability to play around with anything to to put it, pick it up. If I were to switch into something else, you know, I would probably find something where I need to make adjustments. Yes. And of course, brewing water is set up to to require you to actually do some trial and error with the, your various uh, water minerals in order to find that combination that best suits your, your targeted profile. Now, people have said, oh, well, it should calculate it itself. Well, and uh, it would be great, except uh, that sort of calculation capability would take it out of the reach of more people because that self-calculation capability is something uh, unique to only Excel. I, I want to make sure that brewing water is accessible to more people. So uh, the way it is with the trial and error is actually uh, makes it this program function on a, a wider array of platforms. I mean, basically, you go in and you say, "Oh, well, what happens if I add one gram per gallon of sulfate?" Right, and you, and you see what that does and whether or not that pulls you into the target range. To me, I think that's kind of fun anyway. That's kind of twiddling knobs. I was I was the kid who took things apart because I wanted to see how it worked, and I kind of like the idea of being able to see how those numbers adjust just on the basis of what I'm trying to do. Yes, exactly. And as we were talking about earlier, you have. You know, your, your sort of your total water additions, you know, based on the volume of mash water and the volume of sparge water. And so those salts go, you get a ratio of like, okay, so this is how much you're adding into each of these realms. If you have to add five grams of gypsum, it might tell you, you know, okay, put three, uh, three in the mash water, or sorry, two in the mash water and three in the, in the sparge. 
Right. Based on the volumes of water that you've entered for each of the mashing and sparging water. So it, it is important to make sure that your sparge water is not only acidified, but also mineralized if you want to make sure that you have a consistent profile. Correct. And then finally, we get, after you do all that, you know, and you tell it how much acid you're going to use, you know, you get down to an, an adjustment summary at the end in the last tab, and it actually tells you, okay, hey, by the way, make sure you've got this much lactic acid on hand, this much gypsum, da 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 da, and and you're done. Yeah, it's kind of nice. So a little bit, a little bit of work. You you got to get the, uh, you got all your basic setup in there to get your your water and your sparge acidification set. Once that's done, you're done, and then everything else is about you know figuring out okay. What's in the grain bill? How much buffering capacity do I have? And then finally, okay, great. Now what do I add in order to kind of round out that final bit of the profile? We said before, you don't have to you don't have to try and nail all your numbers precisely because you know, truthfully, with the water salts that we have available to us, you're not going to be able to probably nail everything precisely. Get into the general ballpark, unless you're some sort of super duper taster man. Yeah, you're not going to be able to tell the difference between, <laughs> you know, 20 ppm. I don't believe so. No. No. The other thing is, let's say I'm I am a dummy. Let's just put that out there in the universe and suppose that uh, Drew is a dummy. Right now, there are a lot of people who are nodding their heads to that assertion. <laughs> you, you crack me up. I try. <laughs> if I did not do all of this work ahead of time, and I've made my beer, and let's say I have a flabby yellow beer because I didn't acidify, can I actually rescue the beer in the keg? Well, a little, to, to some degree, you can. Uh, for many of the water salts that you're adding, uh, they can often be added to the fermented beer, and you'll get the same effect. However, uh, for the acidification, uh, missing that opportunity during the mash, uh, there are a couple of things like uh, an increased uh, uh, color extraction and some dulling of your hops and, and things like that, that can't be corrected. But yes, I, I have brewed beers that I felt were still eat just because the, you know, the, the major uh, acidifier of beer is yeast. And sometimes yeast or some species of yeast just don't do a good job of acidifying. Uh, and I have gone back and, you know, thrown in a, a dash of lactic or phosphoric in order to, to brighten the beer and it worked. Well, and so what, just a little bit in the, little bit in the keg, a little bit in the keg. Uh, I typically test it out, you know, in, in a pint glass and figure out, okay, uh, it, there's X number of drops per milliliter. <laughs> and I add a, a drop or two and, and taste taste it, and if it's good, then I scale that up uh, for my you know batch size, and away we go. And listeners, if you've never done this sort of experimentation, I do this all the time with cider uh, when I'm trying to teach people the use of tannin and acid in making cider or mead. And you can very easily do this and just get a couple of samples and add some acidification to one glass. Add, you know, in the case of cider, some tannin, or in this particular case, maybe you want to add some gypsum to another glass. And that way you can actually have like three samples in front of you, the neutral one with nothing done to it, the acidified one, and then the one with maybe some salts or something else. And you can, you can really quickly teach yourself 
you know, what the impacts are of these various things. And I think it's a very important exercise for people to pull off. Absolutely. It's very helpful, uh, especially for those post editions of gypsum or calcium chloride. You can really change the beer. Uh, I've had beers that come out, uh, say, a little too full and you know, mouth coating and hit them with a dash of gypsum and they dry right out and they're, they're back to, you know, a wonderful state. All right, Martin, before we uh, take off and let our listeners now ponder water chemistry in their heads, any last words about water that you feel like people should know if they're going to brew? Just that it really does make a difference. And there are simple things that you can do and just trying them out. Something like, uh, you know, if, if all your pale beers tend to be dull and flabby, well, why don't you try, say, a half mil of lactic acid per gallon and see how that brightens it up? Likewise, uh, if you're one of those lucky folks who have really low alkalinity water and you're trying to brew a better dark beer, you know, try a 16th teaspoon of baking soda per gallon in those dark beers and and see if that improves it for you because in most cases they will and those little simple techniques like that you know with no calculation whatsoever other than you know x number of mils or teaspoons per per gallon of water and you're you're there remember people you should really take as much time as you think about your malts and your hops in particular your hops to Take the time to to figure out what's going on with that 80 to 95% of your beer, depending upon how much booze you like in your beer. And, you know, fortunately, we have things like brewing water here to make the work much less painful. And I highly encourage everybody to go check out Martin's site, which is uh, sites.google.com slash site slash brewing water. That will be in the show notes. And you can get the free version of brewing water there or, you know, kick Martin a couple of bucks and uh, get access to version 5.4, the supporters version. So you get all the bells and whistles and extra fancy doodads. Martin, thank you so much for taking the time to sit here and talk us through some water and talk, talk us through how we actually can set up and use brewing water to make water chemistry far more approachable than it seems like when you're faced with daunting tables of various chemical ions and salts. You are welcome, Drew. Glad to be here. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this tour of how to bend water to your will and math. If you've been putting off trying to manipulate your water, I highly recommend grabbing brewing water. Even the free version will help pierce the veil that shrouds the mystery of water chemistry. Go grab it and watch your beer take that leap you've been searching for. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brews, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum known out there. Don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Nowazad, helping soldiers in Afghanistan rescue and take care of the dogs that they find there. Until next time, remember the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files.